Welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from the QI offices in Covent Garden. My name is Dan Schreiber, and I'm sitting here with James Harkin, Andrew Hunter-Murray, and Anna Chizinski. And once again, we have gathered around the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days, and in no particular order, here we go. Starting with you, James Harkin. Okay, my fact this week is that the word wow was popular in Scotland for 400 years before it caught on in the rest of the English-speaking world. <laughs> you were so waiting for one of us to go there, weren't you? Yeah. Oh, hang on. Wow. wow. There we go. There we are. I'll edit that in the right place. Um, yeah, isn't that crazy? It's um, first use, 1513. This is according to the Oxford English Dictionary in a translation of the Aeneid by um, G. Douglas, whoever that was. Wasn't the original author of <laughs> Virgil? Yeah. yeah, you're right. Uh, but G. Douglas was a Scottish person and he said, Out on their wandered spirits, wow, thou cryest. Uh, and then the first time it gets used really in the English speaking world is about the 1890s. And um, Burns uses it and a few other Scottish writers use it as well. And, it was, really? and it was in that context, it's meant as. An exclamation. Looks like it, doesn't it? Wow, thou criest. Yeah. You're crying. Wow. Yeah. So why were Scottish people keeping it to themselves? Like a secret for maybe, 400 years? Maybe the only exciting things that happened in the world were all in Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. They were ahead with inventions and the Enlightenment. There was much more to say wow to That's true. than there was necessarily elsewhere. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, Andy brings up a good point. How is it that we must have been, uh, people were communicating, obviously, from Scotland and England and, yeah. and Ireland and further places. Uh, that Would they have been saying it to their face? Do we know? Or <laughs> <laughs> so you think that when the English went back down south, they go, wow, what a bunch of yeah. idiots. <laughs> wow, thank God he's gone. <laughs> um, well, we don't know. Basically, this is, um, as with all of these citations, this is the evidence that we have. So... The only evidence that we have that it was spoken by anyone or written by anyone was in Scotland. And then when the evidence for it being spoken in England and the rest of the world comes in, that's all later on. Okay. But it seems like they were deliberately keeping it secret from everyone, I guess. <laughs> yeah. As soon as an English person comes along, they all had an agreement to shut up. <laughs> um, do you know another very old Scottish word first used in Scotland is boo. Really? B-double-O. Boo. S same meaning? Yeah. It's a word that's used in the north of Scotland to frighten crying children. So they're already oh, frightened wow. and crying. But does that frighten them out of their tears? It does sometimes for children, doesn't it? I've tried it. Does it? Does yeah, it? just on random. You not sometimes it. make it worse. I think it's 50-50. It's definitely <laughs> worth a try, though. It's quite fun. But then you might try it like eight times, and by then it's like... You know, you do it once and it gets worse, and then you do it again thinking, oh, I'll bring it back to the last time, <laughs> and it just gets worse again. It's uh, a slippery slope, is yeah. what you're saying. But um, So another early reference, this might give more of a uh, guide to what context it was used in, was uh, used by Sir Walter Scott in 1830. And he used to write papers on the esoteric, on, on the paranormal. I had no idea about that. So he wrote a paper on, uh, it was called Letters on Demonology and Witchcraft. And that was from oh. 1830. Uh, and the sentence he had in it was, we start and are afraid when we hear one cry, boo. But he spelt it B-O-H. So sorry, is he claiming that ghosts shout boo? Is that where we've got <laughs> the original idea that ridiculous ghosts shout boo? Yeah, I, I guess so. I, that's what I, I always thought boo. Ghosts, ghosts go woo. 
Oh, which yeah. in comics they say boo. They say boo. Do they? Yeah. I don't it depends on the kind these of. Days. It's a lot like Scottish dialects. I think different ghosts from different places have a different uh, ways of speaking, don't they? Yeah. Different pronunciations. Yeah. Um, so the Scottish also have Scots has four hundred and twenty-one words for snow, which is so. I think a lot of people used to say that Scandinavians had thousands of words yeah, for es- snow. Or Eskimos, something. yeah. Eskimos, um, and they don't, but the Scots do. So they've got these amazing words for snow, and this is taken from all the Scottish dialects. So there are a lot of Scottish dialects from all around the country, and that's different to Gaelic. And there was a study done a couple of years ago by a Scottish thesaurus compiler that found they have words that are specific to snow, like sneasel, which is to begin to rain or snow. Skelf is a large snowflake. Fukta is to fall lightly and come down <laughs> in odd flakes. Fukta. Really? It's really fuktering out there. That sounds very <laughs> Germanic. Germanic. Fukta. Like no. fuk. It does a bit, but it also sounds a bit Scottish. Mm, okay. um, and it obviously is a Germanic language. Originally. The thing with wow. the um, Eskimos, I think, is that you could technically say that they do have 100 words for snow, but the way it is is they have one or two or maybe four or five roots, which kind of means snow, mm. and then the rest of them you can just put like a prefix or a suffix after it to mm. make another word, which means this type of snow or this type of snow. So it's snowing snow. a bit or it's yeah. snowing a lot or yeah. 98 other variations. <laughs> so like we would, s- it counts heavy snow and light snow and, you know, fuck to snow, all this one <laughs> different thing. Just in this in this study that they did, the thesaurus, they also looked at um, words that Scottish people have for sport. They figured there'd be a lot of sporting words as well. Mm. And they assumed that football would have the most words that are used to refer to it because football is a popular sport. And actually, it turns out that the sport of marbles has many more words specific no to it really? than the sport of wow. football. Yeah, so marbles has things like it had 369 different items of vocabulary linked to it in have Scotland. Yep. Yeah, uh, there's <laughs> run tit, which is having lost all of one's marbles to one's opponent. There's a neave, which is a method of cheating and delivering the shot by advancing the hand too far. I remember having that done to me when I was a kid. Wow. So marbles actually are more popular in Scotland than football oh. in some ways. And are these these are words from Scottish dialects or are they Gaelic words? They're words from Scottish dialects. Got it. Ah. And okay. I think you mean Gaelic. I think I mean Gaelic. Oh my god. <laughs> Guys, we've just spent the last fifteen minutes before this podcast <laughs> arguing about this. Yeah. That was an act of war that Andy just (laughs) pulled out there. All I'm saying is what my Glaswegian father has said, and now I think of it, I'm not certain whether he said Gaelic or Gaelic, but I'm pretty (laughs) sure it was Gaelic, so... Please write in. Uh, <laughs> in your hundreds. Um, so d- the, sorry, is marbles competitive? On like, is it like extremely yes. competitive? No, but as in like, you know how we have darts on TV here. Is there marbles on TV in Scotland? Yeah, the marbles channel. You're kidding. <laughs> oh, you are kidding. I am <laughs> kidding. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I think it's just like an old-fashioned game, isn't it? Like, for instance, skittles or something like that. Yeah. Pogs. It's pogs, not one. No. <laughs> it's a bit more old-fashioned than pogs. Older than pogs. Yeah, pogs but... go back uh, to the Roman. <laughs> the Romans yeah. had five hundred different words to describe <laughs> pogs, didn't they? Um, so there is another word uh, which Macmillan's Open Dictionary took in August. So you, some dictionaries have an open section where anyone can submit a word, and, th- and then but the, and it's like a holding pen for words, and then they take the words that they can find actual evidence for. And very one of few of them, I imagine. Yeah, very few. Uh, well, actually, they say about three quarters uh, fall into the disallowed sections and they said that those are words that you or your friends have invented <laughs> uh, obscenities the names of people you dislike and what you would like to do to them <laughs> but with me all three of those are just one word <laughs> <laughs> 
Can you um, share that, or is we'd have to edit we'd that have out? We'd to let we? Andy out of the room. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the word that they took uh, in August was ball bag. Oh yeah. After Hurricane Barbag. After Hurricane Barbag, which was a storm uh, in 2011 on all the papers. It was so annoying that all the papers called it Hurricane Barbag. Barbag? For Barbag, yeah, but with a W, Barbag. And uh. when Nigel Farage visited Scotland in 2013, he was greeted with cries of, Nigel, you're a Barbag. Was that a reference to the hurricane of political activity that he engendered? I can only assume that it is. I can't think of any other reason why (laughs) people would compare him to a Barbag, yeah. Is there a picture of him next to that word in the dictionary? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. They don't really go for pictures in the dictionary, but maybe in the children's edition they'll have a picture yeah. of it. It's weird that that's a saying, actually, isn't it? If you look up stupid, there'll be a picture of you. Because, as you say, the dictionary is a book that does not go in for pictures at all. They should yeah. say, if you looked up stupid in the dictionary, there'd be a, a lengthy verbal description of you. <laughs> <laughs> However, if you were to look it up in the children's dictionary or the picture dictionary, there would be a picture of you. Um, can I just on... Uh, or in Pictionary. Sorry, you're, you're still going. <laughs> yeah. What is Pictionary? That's a game, right? It's a game. Yeah. It's an ancient Roman game, Dan. Yeah. <laughs> it dates back to earlier than Pogs. Impossible. <laughs> just on Scots dialects. So um, there was a census in 2011 which asked Scottish people if they spoke Scots. Ah. And there was a website that was set up to help people out with this in case they didn't know if they did. Because it's dialects. A lot of Scottish people might speak a dialect but think they're actually speaking just kind of bad English. And so there's now a website called I Can A-Y-E-C-A-N which is really fun oh. and it uh, plays the dialects from all the different regions of Scotland and if you can understand them it shows that you speak that dialect does it so also play bad English just in case that's what you speak uh, yeah that's actually become a Scottish dialect <laughs> now <laughs> it's in its own right what they should do is put bad English at the top and so you click on that and it's bad English and you're like okay I definitely don't have any of the rest rather than going through all, all of, of the dialects <laughs> and getting to the end and going oh it was bad English after all <laughs> I don't know if you go through all because if you're from Glasgow for instance it's very unlikely that you'll speak the Shetland dialect unless oh. you've in Shetland they, they spoke something very similar to Old Norse for a long time didn't yeah, they yeah Norn yeah. yeah until only like two or three hundred years ago yeah yeah it's, it clung on because it, well, it came because Norway owned Shetland what, didn't it what's clung on sorry is that the name of it it, cl- it clung on. Oh, it clung on. Sorry, that's just my bad diction. <laughs> You've got bad English. <laughs> I've got bad English. So I found another Scottish word, which is glamour is Scottish. Okay. Which I didn't know. and Because I've heard of that in English as well. Yeah. Right. Well, we use it now. It's it's passed on to us. Yeah. But I just assume glamour meant, you know, someone who looks very glamorous mm. is someone who's dressed very well in high fashion. Um, but the the definition of glamour, at least the original definition, is magic, enchantment, spell. So oh, really? whenever a magician says my glamorous assistant, he's actually saying my magical assistant. Is that really true? Yeah. As in that's why he says, oh, I no, see. I, no, I'm, I'm assuming that must be the origin of that's why not that came. Why, that can't be an amazing why all magicians say my glamorous assistant. No. Said <laughs> glamour meant something astonishing like magical and then it meant something beautiful and then it was used by magicians and then Dan made this connection yeah that's so that, how that's, that's worked what, yes okay well <laughs> what, a, what, what a beautiful connection to me that's cool they might be saying my magical assistant so the Collins English Dictionary they have a Scottish uh, wing and they recently added so they have words of the year which we've discussed on the, yes. on the TV show as well um, so they added what, things like what TV shows that there's no such thing as the news it's the BBC 2 TV show when's it on uh, it's on Wednesday nights on BBC 2 after news night okay they had a words like um, neverendum. Have you heard yeah. of this? Which is just you know this debate about that, the referendum that and about thing Scottish that independence. Ball bag was talking about the whole time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that just keeps going on. And they've also added nickel Go Any on. guesses? Uh, is it a lot of things that you collect that are made out of nickel? 
No, not bad. That's been all the rage this year. <laughs> <laughs> James's desk is piling up. <laughs> is it not? Is it like loose change? Because that's like nickels. No, think of that. think of the Nicola bit of Nicola. So Sturgeon. Nicola Sturgeon. It's merchandise. She collects nickel. Uh, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> it's merchandise featuring the face of Nicola Sturgeon. Oh, okay. And I'm I'm unsure about how much this is used. I haven't phoned up my relatives, right, and asked them. I've just got a couple more things on uh, exclamations. Mm-hmm. Um, so one that I use all the time is holy moly. And I assume that I got that from the early Batman series. You know, holy moly, Batman. So there's actually a Wikipedia article where they've listed every single holy something that Robin has said. And there's cool. hundreds of them. And I've just picked out a few. Holy bank balance. That's one. <laughs> holy contributing to the delinquency of minors, Batman. <laughs> and holy priceless collection of Etruscan snoods. Batman. In context, they might make sense. I think it was plot point explaining. <laughs> I think it was like he was just trying to remind you that we're looking at Etruscan snoods Holy here. crowbar, Batman. <laughs> yeah. But weirdly, the one missing from the list, holy moly, not on the list because it's a catchphrase that's owned by Captain Marvel. You were saying holy. Um, that's what kind of a lot of um, oaths are, aren't they? They're kind of things against the church. Gosh means it's another way of saying God. Gadzooks. 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 Yeah. God's hooks. Um, but when I was looking up gosh, I found out that people used to say losh, which really? was like short for really? Lord. Yeah. Losh. In the um, 18th yeah. century, losh. Really? Oh, that's really good. good that, isn't it? I yeah, might bring I'm that really back. like that. <laughs> um, just on fuddle doddle. Uh, yeah. Another exclamation that's got a more recent history. Do you know where that came from? Fuddle doddle, no. Yeah, fuddle doddle, that thing we say all the time to exclaim. That comes from Pierre Trudeau. So, you know, Justin Trudeau's dad, who was Prime Minister of Canada yeah. in the 70s, he was in a parliamentary debate when he was Prime Minister and the opposition said something he didn't like and he mouthed what the opposition then went out to journalists and complained, looked a lot like a word beginning with F then a word beginning with O. So they said, what were you thinking when you mouthed those two words? And he said, well, what's the nature of your thoughts, gentlemen, when you say fuddle-duddle? So he sort of claimed it was fuddle-duddle and then that's caught on in a, and they in all a went fuck off <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then actually recently last year um justin made a speech where he did admit that his dad hadn't in fact said fuddle duddle right yeah scandal uh, there was an israeli guy he was 90 years old and he um said he was in the news about five or ten years ago saying that he invented have a nice day <laughs> and he was like I don't know what I was thinking it just came into my head and I just said have a nice day and then before I knew it everyone was saying it <laughs> <laughs> Okay, it is time for fact number two, and that is Anna. My fact this week is that at least 61 species live in elephant footprints. That's so cool. It's so cool. Wow. So exclusively (laughs) live in elephant? No. So this is a paper that was published a couple of months ago. I read about it in Scientific American, and uh, they've just studied the... mini ecosystems that are elephant footprints and they found 61 species in them and that's for only studying a few so all these creatures are living in elephant footprints but they make it their permanent habitat because they looked at older footprints and they found that they'd have much many more animals in them and that's because you know dead leaves have fallen into them and things like that so it's become a bit like richer environment for them but yeah you get think you get tadpoles in them swimming around you get <sighs> Mites, mayflies, leeches, gastropods. So no, none of the big hitters. Right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you don't it's get any like, shrews. Yeah, or they don't get dolphins in there. Do they? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. No, no, but you, cheaters. Apparently, they can hold 200 litres of water. 
Isn't that amazing? What? Yeah. yeah Maybe really a like... litre is less than we think it is. Yeah, how, how much is oh, that Oh, well, really? this is an African litre, which is five milliliters. No, I don't know. <laughs> I, don't know. I, I think it's, um, I think it, it's, yeah. If you had to express that in a in something that I'd understand, uh, It would be, uh, you know, nearly 400 pints. Wow. Mm. In one footprint. Yeah. yeah, I think that's, I was so sceptical, but I guess in mud, then they'll sink very deep, won't they? Yes. So that can yeah. really Does that out. count as a footprint then? If like your leg is in... You think it's a leg print? <laughs> That's a leg print. <laughs> it's right. a full elephant print if he just gets completely <laughs> stuck in. Um, but they do, and the other thing they do is they hop from footprint to footprint. What you elephants? Yeah. Oh, no, <laughs> <laughs> I read they can't even jump. <laughs> um, they call them stepping stone habitats, oh. and apparently, because during the dry season, it's really important for animals. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. if it, if the elephants weren't walking through this area, they would disappear during a dry season. Certain other species would not be able to live in these areas. Wow. Um, but it's they, mad. I mean, this is. This raises more cause for concern at elephant poaching, obviously, because it looks like these elephant footprints are preserving a lot of these creatures. Massive They're housing crisis. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I was already quite concerned about elephant poaching, but now I hear that tadpoles are involved. <laughs> <laughs> I'm breaking it. Well, the thing is, like, with all this kind of thing, the elephants, you can be concerned about the elephants, but actually it's the fact that they're top you know, species in an ecosystem. And actually it is. There's hundreds and hundreds of different species that rely on them. Yeah. So you, yeah. like, if you want to save an elephant, it's mostly the other animals you should be worried about, really. Mm. Yeah, but ah. they, don't, they don't look as cool as an elephant, do they? It's true. But also, is it not that they loads of plants that they disperse the seeds through yeah. the poo and yeah. stuff? Oh, they do. So they really do. Who, who do, sorry? Elephants. So um, people, they're called ecological engineers because they properly create habitats for other animals to live in, don't they? By knocking down all the trees yeah, and so seed they, dispersal. They're good for lions. Right. Because they, they knock down trees as they move along and they convert forest to scrubland, which means you get smaller animals living in the scrubland, which means that lions prey on the smaller animals so not so good for the smaller animals then no but good but for, the lions. for the lions yeah ah. and apparently they have 96 species of seed a day on average in their poo which they disperse across the uh areas they're moving through they're like large insects really aren't they spreading they're like big bees <laughs> no <Yeah>. spreading seeds <laughs> not, i mean they are they're, they're po- almost like pollinators they're so unlike insects <laughs> The opposite of insects. They spread the seed of plants. I mean, in that one incredibly specific respect, (laughs) they're quite like insects. (laughs) And they've got six legs. Is that right? (laughs) So um, just to get my head around it, these animals, they're most found there. Where else would they live if not in the footprints? In ponds and stuff. So there are fewer ponds around, especially in the dry season. So they'll find this kind of footprint which has turned into a pond and they'll live there. Okay. Well, if it wasn't there, they'd have to try and find another pond. Yep, but the it. more ponds there are, the more places they can live and the better their species will do. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I got it now. <laughs> do you know one amazing use for elephant poo? If you're dying of thirst. Oh, no. Yes. No. You can yeah. squeeze it together and wring a few drops of water out yeah, of it. Yeah, Barrett Grills does that, doesn't he? I think he did it with camel poo as opposed to elephant poo. Mm. Can't remember. Maybe it was elephant poo. But yeah, you, yeah, you can there's, see footage of that. There's not much um, bacteria in there. Botswana gets 650,000 kilos of elephant droppings on the ground. That's Botswana alone every day. Wow. It's a lot. It's so much. Yeah, they what? poo a lot. <laughs> it is a lot. Well, no, no one's denying it. <laughs> All right, but I'm waiting for one of you to try to deny it. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that much. It is that much. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I was I was looking into um, 
other odd places that you find uh, species living in okay. that aren't necessarily natural to their habitat. There's uh, researchers uh, have been looking in a specific African cave because they found out about this uh, group of crocodiles who live in this cave, and it's really rare because they're out of sunlight for most of the time. Um, they feed off bats that live in the cave, and so on. And yeah, they have just a totally different eating habit. The thing is, they do go out though, so they're not going to go blind. They're not going to adapt to nighttime because yeah, they're going to need the heat because they don't make their own heat yeah exactly but they do spend a lot of time there and one thing they noticed they did think uh for a while at least to, to begin with like wow i wonder if this is a completely different species or subspecies of crocodile because it was orange and they were like what's going on here and it turns out that because of the water that they're in in the caves there's so much bat poo that goes into the water that ah. it's colored the crocodiles into a different color so they come out and they're like whoa what's this weird color and it's just bat shit do you think that's where the phrase bat shit crazy comes from because they look so crazy they've turned orange and the other crocodiles are going you look bat shit crazy <laughs> it could be yeah i don't think so <laughs> there's actually this other amazing cave that has its own ecosystem which i found out about so this is called the Son Dung Cave in Vietnam. Apologies if I've mispronounced that. This is the world's largest cave and it was discovered in 2009 by a British guy. Uh, so that's what it, when it's reported it was discovered, even though I think the people in Vietnam knew about it. But it's this huge cave. So it has a jungle in it if you go into it. So it's got a jungle with... You should honestly look up look up pictures of this place. It's extraordinary. A jungle in a cave. The trees... Come are the, on. The tre and inside the jungle, there's a desert. <laughs> <laughs> inside that, there's an ocean. Yeah. Why won't you believe me? Where at the bottom is another massive cave. <laughs> it's the Russian doll of caves. There's a jungle with trees that are 30 meters tall. Um, it has its own river. Um, it's, it's got a, it's got a center parks. <laughs> Um, and all these new species have been found in it anyway. So, yeah, honestly, look up pictures of it. So they found a new type of gecko, a tree frog, a new type of striped hare living inside this cave <laughs> completely underground. The main cavern of it is so big it has its own climate. So it has rain clouds, wow, which I imagine amazing. means it actually rains inside this huge cave. Where is this again? Uh, it's in Vietnam. Wow. Can I just say one last thing? Yeah, sure. Because I read this the other day. I haven't got the full details here, but there's a species of crab and they're... Um, polygamous so the males have sex with loads of different females and vice versa if these crabs find a turtle shell with just the right gap between the shell and the bottom of the turtle that will fit two crabs in then a male and a female crab will go and live inside the turtle shell and they'll have a, a monogamous relationship and they won't have sex with anyone else no and they'll way. just live there but anywhere else they live they'll have loads of partners but if they find that little niche then they'll kind wow. of stay together it's like a suburb yeah. <laughs> it's right. If you move into the perfect house, then your relationship can be repaired. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. That's a lesson here. <laughs> okay, it is time to move on to fact number three, and that is my fact. My fact this week is that the original edition of Wisden's Cricketer's Almanac was 112 pages long. And, because the author wasn't sure what to put in it, was padded out with accounts of the trial of King Charles I. Right. Oh. So if you don't know what this book is, this is published annually and it is the ultimate cricketer's book. And the current edition, the 2016 edition, is over 1,500 pages long. Wow. And so it's a huge book. It has nothing but cricket. But the very first edition, <laughs> Wisden was like, I don't have enough cricket to put in this, but I need to make it worth buying. So he added the accounts of the trial from King Charles I. He also put in battles of the English Civil War and also Britain's canals, the size of them in length. <laughs> and also the rules of quoiting. Yeah, what is that? 
Uh, quieting is where you, I think you have, a quite is like a kind of a circular thing, a bit like a horseshoe, and you throw it to um, a stick, and it yeah. goes round the stick, and if you get it round the stick, you get points. Yeah. It's based on pub garden games, quoits. Okay. Uh, yeah. We should actually not only explain what quoiting is, but probably for our American well, Explain what cricket is. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. It's like baseball, only a lot slower. Okay, yeah. that'll do. And, <laughs> yeah. and there, are, there are tea breaks. Yeah. As yeah. In, and that I still find that insane. So I didn't know that because I didn't really follow cricket. But halfway through a day of playing cricket, they all stop to have cups of tea. No, you have tea as in food. You would have like yeah. sandwiches and stuff. Uh, yeah. To, see, to English people who know about cricket, that seems like the most normal thing in the world. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, you go for well, five Well, I'm an Aussie. Days. I should know that in theory. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, actually, do Australia play cricket anymore? <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> Interesting fact about... The Cricketer's Almanac. Yeah. Really interesting fact. Get ready. Hold on to your <laughs> seats. Um, so it's been published every year since 1864. And for the first six years it was published, it was Wisden's Cricketer's Almanac. But for the subsequent however many years, it's been Wisden's Cricketer's Almanac with the apostrophe on the other side of the S. Which S? <laughs> Wisden's or Cricketer's? Cricketer's. Yeah, th- there's only ever been one wisdom. So it's always been for from one wisdom, but originally it was for only one cricketer. It was for one cricketer for wow. the first six years. <laughs> it was just aimed at one cricketer. No one knows who that cricketer is. But John Wisdom, the founder, was quite an interesting guy. He was a cricketer, and his nickname was The Little Wonder because he was five foot nothing, and he weighed seven stone when he started his career. I and mean, he was tiny. Uh, and yet, in one match in 1850, he bowled out all ten of the opposite team in a single innings, mm. which I wow. think... It's, it's written online that this is the only time that's ever happened in a first-class match. That's so it. they were all bowled out as in he hit the stumps rather than them being caught out or, you know, mm. got out another way. There are about ten ways you can be caught out. That's great. Well, yeah. well done him. Yeah. On page 657 of the year 2000 edition, the Leicester spin bowler Matthew <laughs> Brimson exposed himself and nobody noticed at the time and it went into the edition and then about six days after it had been published someone wrote in and said this guy's middle stump is in this picture Matthew Engel who was editor at the time uh, wrote about this and he said uh, in the 2000 Leicestershire photo one of their most obscure players was laughing ooh <laughs> having chosen to expose himself to the camera his only contribution to cricket history oh, the Leicestershire <laughs> the Leicestershire squad was large the page was small so was our editorial team and so was the appendage <laughs> <laughs> okay this guy got slammed Fantastic. by the editor <laughs> yeah absolutely it um, is kind of embarrassing that nobody noticed for a week yeah, yeah. yeah. and then when it, so then he was asked to apologise and he didn't and apparently he said well he said it was the editor's fault because they should have spotted it and Engel said oh do you think we need to we need to employ a full-time penis spotter then (laughs) so did you know the first uh, cricket balls were rolled along the ground that was the first way you bowled in cricket really this is very early yeah it's so it's more like croquet kind of yeah Right. Except you're allowed to roll the balls along the ground. Instead of yeah, yeah. And the idea being that it was still trying to hit stumps behind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So okay. there's um, is it French cricket where you throw very, very low? You aim for someone's legs. Yeah, yeah. French you're cricket. throwing it around basically. So yeah. instead of having wickets that you aim for, you aim for their legs. Yeah. So, but one, and this is very exciting. So one of the first bowlers to pitch uh, was a guy called Edward Lumpy Stevens. <laughs> Lumpy was his nickname. And there's a book. The author got that nickname after he exposed himself. <laughs> <laughs> Um, there's a book called The Author's Eleven and it says the name Lumpy may have come either from his ability to pitch the ball on any protrusion on the pitch or his fondness for eating a whole apple pie at a time (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, um, in all the kind of, uh, if you read, uh, you know, amazing things about uh, Wisden's Cricketer's Almanac, one of the claims they make is that both P.G. Woodhouse got the name Jeeves from Wisden Cricketer's Almanac and Sherlock Holmes was named after a cricketer as well. Conan Doyle used to read Wisden's Cricketer's Almanac. I can't see any evidence that that's true, though. So I think that's one of those myths that's been going around that that's where they got them. Because you do have quotes from P.G. Woodhouse saying that he knew Jeeves, the cricketer, and he was a big fan of his. And that's where the name came from. So presumably he didn't need to discover that in a book. He already knew that. That reminds me that um, Blofeld, the um, bad guy in James Bond, is named after Henry Blofeld's father, I think. Oh, yes, oh. he the is. Family. Who is a cricket commentator? So, yeah, Henry Blofeld's a cricket commentator. Um, we met him last year. He came on our radio show, Museum of Curiosity. Uh, and um, he told this story about how Ian Fleming was in a gentleman's club in London and was looking through the members list and saw Blofeld's father in there and decided to name him after that. Wow. wow. Did, was there beef between them? No, I don't think so. Because he named Goldfinger after yeah. the architect Goldfinger, who he didn't like at all. Yeah. And he tried to sue him, didn't he? Like, he was very... Goldfinger tried yeah. to sue, yeah. Goldfinger was very mm. angry about yeah. that. Yeah. Um, um, the most famous copy of Wisden is a 1939 edition belonging to E.W. Swanton. Uh, he was a cricket writer, and then he was taken prisoner by the Japanese in the war. Mm. Uh, and it was so popular with all the other prisoners of war that everyone used to borrow it. And he had to turn it into like a library book so people could take it at different times. Uh, and then uh, it became really, really thumbed through. It was stamped not subversive by the Japanese. Little did they know all the <laughs> subversive political undertones <laughs> to those extensive scorecards. Yeah. And um, now it's in the museum at Lodz. Wow. It, do, it does show how poor the reading material was for Prisoners of War mm. because it is not an interesting book. It's a thick book. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> You can yeah. recreate an entire cricket match just based <laughs> on a few numbers and names. That's incredible. That's true, and you could picture it in your head probably as yeah. you're going along. Right, yeah. It's like saying that... If you've got a good like imagination, then anything's interesting, I suppose, guys. But it is a long like, list of scores. It's like saying the score of an opera isn't an interesting read. Come on, <laughs> <Yeah>. Anna. <laughs> when was the first edition? This was like back in... 1864. Oh, it's been in print every year since... That. It's a good book. Yeah, but I bet have not that many people buy have it. Have you ever read it? No. no, no loads no, of people no. buy it. <laughs> More than like, like 50 Shades of Grey and stuff <laughs> like that. Oh, come on. You can't, you can't, have, you can't compare like for like with... You well, know. I'm comparing those two now and I'm saying one of them is probably a better read than the other and it's Wisdoms. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you know who invented bowling? Uh, this is really interesting. Edward Lumpy Stevens. Sorry, do you know who invented overarm bowling? The theory goes it was invented by a woman. So women's cricket has a really interesting history, but uh, this is the claim that a woman called Christina Willis used to bowl over onto her brother, John, who played for England. This was in the early 19th century. Mm. Um, and she did it to avoid getting tangled up in her skirts when she went underarm. And he took it to the matches he went on to play and realized it was much more effective than underarm. Mm. But yeah, women's cricket was really popular in the 19th century. So uh, there were matches played all over England that would get crowds of 3,000, uh, 3, which is quite large for a, just an amateur cricket match. Um, there are pictures of women playing cricket that go back to medieval times and the women were the first people to have not red balls and the reason was in the late 19th century balls were turned from red to blue for women because it was worried that lady cricketers would swoon at the sight of a red one 
<laughs> and just one last thing we said at the top that Americans won't really know what cricket is but they do have a cricket team that does play internationally and they're called the Compton cricket team so straight out of Compton we know from MWA is that mm. it's about cricket Com Com <laughs> yes uh, Ice Cube was actually a uh, umpire and uh, yeah the uh, Compton cricket team they've they say that the aim of playing cricket is to teach people how to respect themselves and respect authority so they stop killing each other and the homies mission is to curb the negative effect of gang activities and they've been over to the UK a bunch of times wow. playing exhibition matches with uh, UK teams cool. so yeah so cricket is starting up there first okay. ever international game USA versus Canada no way really yeah Britain toured to uh, the USA in mm. the mid 19th century and it would have become massive if it wasn't for the civil war yeah Oh, which you can read about in uh, the original <laughs> edition of... <laughs> it was a different the... civil war. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, it is time to move on to our final fact of the show, and that is Andrew Hunter-Murray. My fact is that fossilised poo is worth more if it has what one collector calls the classic poo look. <laughs> okay. So Describe this, that. Well, I think we all know what the classic <laughs> poo look is. Uh, so this is the fact that the Guinness World Record has just been announced for the largest collection of fossilised poo. Uh, it's a man called George Franson. He studied paleontology. George Lumpy Franson. <laughs> <laughs> um, he owns 1,277 pieces of fossilized excrement uh 1277 wow uh, he's been collecting it for nearly 20 years so uh, and he says that the classic poo look makes it more valuable along with um you know distinctive uh, ripples and of size the bigger the, be the better the bigger the better always yep. yeah 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 just okay. what is a distinctive rip is that like if someone's name is written in the ripples or <laughs> <laughs> that'd be very romantic i think yeah <laughs> so good. um and well, they all had to be examined by a professional paleontologist all 1,277 They're pieces. They're paleoscatologists, aren't they? Oh, people who study them, yeah. Wow. Well, because the problem is a lot of people like to buy coprolites, as they're called, online. Um, but most people can't really tell the difference between uh, a real one and a fake one. So yeah. a lot of people are just buying rocks. And they just think they have it, but it's just a rock. Yeah. And they're called pseudo-coprolites. Yeah. Yes. And there's yeah. real controversy about the biggest one ever. You know this? No. It got sold in uh, July 2014. It was auctioned off. It was 40 inches long. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, that was quite a famous one, wasn't it? Very famous. Yeah. It got sold for $10,000. Uh, and the, the, the auction said, the passer of this remarkable object is unknown and all this you know stuff. But <laughs> it came from a place called the Wilkes Formation, which is where there was a swamp. And there is a theory that actually it's plant material and lumps of mineral because sometimes things get uh, lumps of ash get turned into clay and they get squeezed through knot holes in trees. I mean, how is <laughs> it's not that much different than a poo, is it? Exactly. It's, it's basically just a tree poo. Yeah, it's basically being pushed through like a tube of toothpaste. Mm. So there is a theory that that's that, but you'd have to <laughs> cut it in two to take a slice because there'll be uh, organic material in there if it is a coprolite. I found a really good website uh, called The Poo-Zeum. Did you guys see that? <laughs> no. Did no one see it? No, I've seen The Poo-Zeum. Isn't it great? I didn't look at the website I saw it referred to and I yeah. thought that was a funny name. Exactly. <laughs> so it puts you off to look at it because you think this is a silly name. It's not going to be good. This is a guy who, much like the person you've just said with the largest collection, has dedicated his life to understanding and cataloging and reporting on coprolites. And it's fantastic. It's an incredible website. It's got pictures. It's got all the latest news stories. I Honestly, I... <laughs> <laughs> highly recommend Poozium. Give us an example of a brilliant Poozium news story. What, he was telling you how you can make your own... Uh, I know <laughs> how to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I've been dedicating my life to making my own. <laughs> how you can make your own poo 
fossil in time. So he says you, and this was done in an interview that he uh, reposted on his own site by Jason Rosenfeld on Silicon Exit, which is a website, did this great interview with him. So he said that the way that you can make your own coprolite is that you start off by eating a bunch of corn and peanuts every few days. And that will give the copper light interesting inclusions and make it worth more money when someone finds it a special treasure because that's easier to tell if something is genuinely poo because it has little bits sticking out of it of insects or whatever that that helps them identify it and then you dig it into a very deep hole uh and then put the soil over immediately so nothing gets to it that in theory is how you make your own fossil poo if someone wants to start get going on that unbelievably weird thing to do or you poo in the lake how come? It, it sinks through the water, right? Mm-hmm. And it gets to the bottom and there's much less oxygen down there for it for bacteria to eat it. So the hope is that over time, anaerobic bacteria gradually replace the matter with um, uh, minerals. But d- for best results, you have to poo in the lake. So you have to get in the lake, oh. do the poo, get out of the lake. Okay. I mean, there are other ways to make your mark on this earth. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's very unreliable because, you know, the w- world would be covered in poo if they all survived. So in fact, it's it's a really valuable substance, right? Because it used to be important as fertilizer, coprolite. And so when they discovered this, then it became something that people mined. And there are various places in the UK where <laughs> coprolite mining was an important industry. So one of the main centers of this was a place called Shillington in Bedfordshire. And this was in the mid-19th century, its population doubled because loads of people flocked. It was a bit like the gold rush. It was the UK equivalent of the gold <laughs> rush. <laughs> people flocked. America's always better, isn't it? (laughs) We've had a turd rush, America. If you go to Bedfordshire, all the streets are paved with shit. (laughs) So the brilliant thing about this place is it had this big boost to the local economy. And it was actually a bit of a problem because these pubs um, multiplied because coprolite miners were (laughs) paid. Desperately to drink away the memories of what they spent their day doing. <laughs> well, they had quite a lot of fights, so there was tension and everything. I can mean, I, exactly like the gold rush. Can I just say, in the gold rush, people used to go to the pubs and pay for their drinks with like little bits of gold that they'd found. <laughs> Do yeah. you think people used to just go <laughs> just with it? And they're like, this isn't an ancient one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Forgeries from half an hour ago. <laughs> <laughs> the great thing about this place is... It's called Shillington, but uh-huh. its name was actually changed in the 1880s because oh, uh, no. it was worried it was going to offend Queen Victoria because it was called Shitlington. Yeah. Really? No. Yeah. yeah. Shitlington was the heart of shit mining. Wow. That's amazing. Oh, Hello shit. to anyone living in Shillington <laughs> yeah. who's yeah. learning that for the first time. Is that a coincidence? It's a coincidence. Like glamorous assistant. No. Like it's a total yeah. coincidence? It's a coincidence. It's a coincidence. Yeah. <gasps> wow. They, yeah, discovered, yeah. they only discovered the turd seam in the mid-19th century, and it had been around for hundreds of years before that. They called it the treacle mines, locally. Mm. Yeah, they used to, yeah. That's the worst euphemism I've ever heard for anything. (laughs) It's weird that there's a seam, isn't it? You would would think that they'd be scattered fairly evenly, but actually it all comes from a time when the south of England was covered in hundreds of metres of water, uh, flooded, and all the land animals died, so there's a lot remaining from that period. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, Andy, the whole idea of coprolite selling more if it looks actually like a poo. Mm. Um, I was reading, again, in this interview from Poozium, that uh, the reason that it's so precious is actually most fossilized poo. The reason it doesn't retain the shape of a poo is that most animals will do it from a height, obviously, and then it, <laughs> it experiences what he calls the splatter effect. So it's very hard to get a poo-shaped fossil because most of it has splattered once get, it hits the ground. Get in the lake. Get in the lake is the answer, yeah. yeah. Well, to slow That's it down true. on the descent. Absolutely, yeah. yeah um, you say they're so precious. This guy, George Franzen, <laughs> his most valuable coprolite is called Precious. 
<laughs> just to make him a tiny bit more creepy, the idea of us yeah. sitting by it going, my precious. I, I wonder, because the splatter effect thing I just said was, he's talking literally about precious in this sentence. Is it's, this the same guy? Does he run Puseum? I don't know. <laughs> I think that your guy runs the Puseum. Oh. I've just checked it. That's it's fantastic. a great site. The guy knows what he's talking about. He sure does. Um, something related to coprolites are regurgitolites. Ooh. Mm-hmm. What's uh, which is, fossil- well, what do you think? Fossilized vomit? Correct. Yeah. Whoa. yeah um, really good because often this will be something, if you've got fossilized poo and you can see what someone's eaten, but it's obviously been through the digestive system. If it's fossilized vomit, then obviously not been quite as far through the digestive system. So you can see a lot better what these things have eaten. Um, so there was a bit of vomit coughed up by an ichthyosaur 160 million years ago, and it's still got little bits of the like ammonites and stuff that were in there. That's amazing. Yeah, it's really That's good. So it's a cool. shame for the ichthyosaur who vomited and thought, God, I hope no one remembers this I moment. And 160 <laughs> million years later, okay, I'm still reminiscing. There's an even more embarrassing thing. We think we have a 300-year-old piece of bishop's excrement. Wow. This is in the news this week. So um, there's a Danish <laughs> in bishop. In the news. <laughs> Headline. <laughs> I didn't see on Pazeum, so <laughs> I don't think a, it's credible. There was a Danish bishop called Jens Bircherod, and he lived in a city called Alborg until 1708. And 80 years ago, archaeologists found in his private midden a lump of stuff. Right. And now it's been analysed, and we, they think it's Bishop's poo. It could be the bishop's wife, but what? it's got... <laughs> he married a poo? <laughs> <laughs> 18th century Denmark was a very liberal place. <laughs> no, um, one professor said this is a way of making history through the back door. Um, and the word the treacle mine. <laughs> and they're going to put it probably in the local museum. It's That's so embarrassing. No, I think it's good to be proud of it. So there's a, there's a village called Bassingbourne. Hello to those in Bassingbourne as well, which was another home of coprolite mining. And they wanted to erect a statue as a monument to their village's great history in 2005. And there were some contenders. So they could have had a heron. There are lots of beautiful herons there. Uh, they thought about having a Second World War bomber uh, because they had a strong Second World War history. And then one of the suggestions was a large poo and the village voted and they voted for the poo so they've got <laughs> don't a- let the public vote on things <laughs> okay that's it that's all of our facts thank you so much for listening if you'd like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we have said over the course of this podcast we can be found on our twitter accounts i'm on at schreiberland james at egg shaped andy at andrew hunter m and anna you can email podcast at qi.com yep or you can go to our group twitter account which is at qi podcast or our website no such thing as a fish.com where we have all of our previous episodes you can also go to no such thing as the news.com which has all of our tv show episodes a topical look at the world week by week uh we will be back again next week with another episode we'll see you then goodbye